ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Boso's family moved to Australia from Korea when he was just eight years old. For a while at school, Bo struggled with conversational English. And as a result, he retreated into himself a bit and made a habit of refusing to argue with anyone. And then a teacher encouraged Bo to join the school debating team. And that changed everything. Bo went on to captain the Australian school's debating team and won the World Debating Championships twice. Then Bo went to Harvard University in the United States, where he coached their debating team. And now he's written a book, which is part memoir and part guide to arguing well. And this is very welcome. I think most of us would agree that we live in an age of bad faith arguments, my side right or wrong arguments that are exacerbated in the public square by partisan media and social media algorithms. Boso says that to change the world, debate has to first change the lives of debaters. And there should be a kind of love at work. Bo's book is called Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. Hello, Bo. Big fan of the show, Richard. Thanks for having me. That's very kind of you to say so, <laughs> sir. It's lovely to have you here, Bo. Like I said, your family migrated to Australia from South Korea when you were a kid. Do you remember much of your early life in South Korea, in Seoul? I was a timid kid and... Um I was on book tour in South Korea last week and one of the things you notice there is there are a lot of Koreans. <laughs> it's a, a relatively homogenous culture. It's an urban landscape. People live in apartments stacked to the skies and I felt just a, a one of a sea of humanity. Um, and as someone who was not particularly outgoing or outstanding in school in those days, I felt very comfortable um, being mostly invisible. What led your family to want to migrate to Australia? I think there were a range of motivations. They were attracted to the educational opportunities in Australia. To really? Because I hear schools are better in uh, South Korea these days. Um, they certainly take more of your time. <laughs> but... Um, but I think they were attracted to the much more liberal um, approach that the Australian schools took. They were attracted to um, professional opportunities for themselves. But I, I, I think for most migrants, it is a sense that they have that there's something on the other side and that that impulse to leave, to seek out something new... Um, it precedes any of the normative judgments we might place on that, whether it's courage or whether it's curiosity. I think it's just a, an impulse that people have. My wife migrated from Singapore when she was the same age. Well, the first thing she noticed leaving Singapore was to go to the outer burbs of uh, Melbourne was the quiet yes, mixed with noisy bird song, that sort of thing. <laughs> Did the landscape shock you when you arrived here? Yes, it was... Um, the greenness of it did come as a shock. And you're right about the quiet. Um, in Korea, restaurants are open all night and the sound of the city forms a background to whatever you're doing. And we 
were in the North Shore of Sydney where things shuttered around six o'clock back then. The leafy North um, Shore of Sydney, as it's often called. Yes. Precisely. Mm. And so uh, we actually hurt ourselves a lot more. When you're sitting around the dinner table, you got the sense, oh, it's kind of us against the world because <laughs> there are no distractions. And from there you go into school and by the sound of things you didn't have much English or any English at all when you started? Almost none. I mean, I, I would have taken some classes um, at school and I would have had a handful of phrases mostly about how to tell the time and that kind of thing. But one of the things that I noticed when I got here was there's a real difference between what you see in the textbooks and real life conversation. The Australian pronunciation, first of all, is not um, the BBC English that you hear on the tapes when you're learning the language. How did you go with the old yeah, no, Australian? Like, um, yeah, no, exactly. uh, it's nice to have you here, but yeah, no, it's good. It's rare to see mm. a language uh, premised on breaking the rules of the language. <laughs> and It wasn't a particularly welcome discovery at the time. Seriously, though, like Australians do like to talk around a subject. Like you say, ask an American how you're feeling. They go, great, fantastic, or terrible. Australian go, oh, not too bad, oh, or a bit ordinary. Oh, does that make it particularly hard for someone who's really struggling to sort of glean as much meaning as they can out of a conversation? That's very interesting. Um, you know, living now in the United States, one of the things I notice is people put the subject line at the top, right? This is my meaning. And um, there's an emphasis in getting the message across as quickly as possible. Whereas in Australia... Uh, to put it in a positive way, it felt like um, a commitment to remaining in conversation over the long term. It's not just one party broadcasting their thoughts. It was an invitation to stay a while, to canvas different views and to, um, as you say, to talk around a subject sometimes. And there were some features of that that were uniquely challenging to someone who didn't have much of the language. You say it was after you moved here, you you lost the ability to disagree. How did that actually happen, the, losing the ability to disagree? I think the first part is um, disagreements present unique linguistic challenges, right? When people are disagreeing, they tend to become a lot more imprecise in their use of language. The sentences break down, people change um, directions halfway through a sentence, and all of that could be quite discombobulating. But there was also the sense that I had as an immigrant, as a newcomer to the place, that showing my differences from my peers, that that could unsettle the belonging I had been able to achieve, right? I thought my belonging to this new society would be conditional on my being agreeable, my smiling and nodding and keeping a lot of thoughts to myself. And the combination of those two things made me resolve at that young age to be a very agreeable person. And so you're right, you would say yes and okay to just about anything that was put to you. What do you think you missed out on from saying yes and okay for several years to just about everything that was put to you? In those early years, I didn't know the sound of my own voice and the loss... There's a spiritual loss, I think, associated with that. But there's also, you put a limit on the kinds of relationship you can have with others when you're walking the thin tightrope of just remaining 
on the areas in which we agree rather than we disagree. It made me lose out on conversations of substance um, that I think I could have been having as someone who comes from an obviously different background and uh, could, through that exchange, learn something about the world around me. So for me, it was the loss of a voice that in turn meant the loss of a certain kind of access to relationships and to belonging in society. If I knew you then, if we'd been in the same class, I, and if I'd heard you saying yes and okay to everything, I wouldn't have termed, in, interpreted that as agreeableness, but so oh. much as disengagement. Uh, he doesn't want to know me. He doesn't want to know anything about my, my life. Do you think that's how that went over sometimes? That's very interesting. Um, and I do think nowadays when I see in the world a turn to conflict aversion, right, and the thought that at a time of polarization when there are all these ugly disputes, um, it's no longer worth it. I do think that is premised on the dark set of assumptions that you've just said, right? It's about these people are beyond the pale of persuasion. It's it's premised on a dim view of the other person. Now, back in those days, I mean, I certainly think they would have thought, um, the other students would have thought, this is a person who's very shy or this is a person who... Um, I think they would have had a sense that my being so different from others was a big part of that disengagement, that there was a protective instinct at play. And this is a fine example now of how one teacher can change the trajectory of your entire life. Like I said, a teacher came to you and urged you to be on the school's debating team. Grade five, this is, primary school. That's true. How did the teacher pitch it to you? She made me a promise, um, which was that on the debate team, on the debating team, when one person speaks, no one else does. And she left it at that. But I think she would have known that to someone who was used to being interrupted and spun out of conversation, who felt acutely the burden of... Um, having to respond in a situation where people could butt in, that that promise of silence and attention would have been irresistible. Yeah, for a lot of kids, it would have been the thing that turned them off the whole process. Exactly. So it's a call to courage too, isn't it, for a teacher to say that to you? You can heard, be heard uninterrupted. Uh, you do have to summon some courage for that, no matter how good your grasp of English is, I suppose. I think that's true. But for me, it was the sense that you're not in it alone, that when you do summon the courage to raise your voice and to articulate your perspective, the rest of the world will conspire with you, right? In debating, when one person speaks, no one else does. All of the participants are given equal time in which to speak. There are expectations that you speak to a topic rather than anything that you like. And so there was certainly a call to courage, but there was also uh, a promise and a commitment that we, the people responsible for the environment around you, will make sure that that courage, that expression of courage will be honoured. How well do you remember that first debate you took part in? I remember it pretty well. Um, I, it was in, uh, I went to Warunga Public School and it was in the, um, the main school hall, right, the, the type with the corrugated iron roof on, on top of it and 
it was raining that day, um, forming a kind of percussion. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I was so nervous. Um, the topic was that we should ban all zoos. And I was the first affirmative speaker. And it was the kind of nerves where you squeak <laughs> on the way onto the stage. And so um, I'm going up on stage and the kids, uh, my classmates, are sat in staking lines. Um, there's about 50 of them maybe, my, my year group. I somehow start to speak and as I do, I notice in the audience all of these small changes. I see a wince of recognition in the corner of someone's eye. You can see that while you're while you're making your point. So, you, and is that something you see as the audience opening themselves to what you have to say? You can see that, and I think part of it, um, though I wouldn't have known it then, is debate as this activity of persuasion, right? Makes you very attentive to the signals that you're getting from the audience. Am I being heard? Am I being understood? Do I need to change how I'm explaining this concept? Um, so I saw these changes, someone unfolding their arms or someone touching the person next to them and saying, are you getting this? And the way that made me feel at the time was that the world was not just a place where I would have to change myself to fit in, that I would have to assimilate, but that perhaps through speech and language, I could change something about the world too. Is a fall debate like a fight or is it more like a dance competition? Tell me about the dancing. Well, where you have to compete by dancing better, by being more flamboyant perhaps, more beautiful, more elegant, more precise... Do you win by that or do you win by the fight? I think there's a bit of both. Um, there is certainly a competitive edge um, to the competition. And one of the things I like about debate is it doesn't require the participants to be angels, right, displaying only mm. virtue. There is vulnerability in argument. There is competitiveness in argument. Um, but there's performance and there's beauty too. Um, and in that way, the um, the dance part resonates with me also, um, even though you you wouldn't want to see me dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you. I don't know. I don't know about that. Both. Or or fight for that matter. You're, actually, you're, 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 you're here for the Sydney Writers Festival. There'll be parties that at some point I would hope. Um, I can dance with other writers. That, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Famously bad dancers as a group of people they are. There's no shortage of bad arguments in the world at the moment. Yes. We, we, that's really obvious to it. When you want to identify a, a bad argument from a good argument, what are some of the key components? Components you, you like to single out? So the answers are various. Um, a bad argument uh, has no limits, right? It, it starts out as one issue and then becomes about the other person's character. It becomes about all the differences in the background that we have. Right, it metastasizes. <laughs> Precisely. Right. There is a... Um, disagreements do tend to grow, rather than to contract, um, and, and it can have that pathological aspect to it. Um, they're often 
based on um, the way in which people express themselves is not through arguments at all. It's just through the expression of emotion or they just um, say what it is they believe without trying to make it comprehensible or persuasive to the other side. So coercion, uh, contempt perhaps? Contempt um, and as you say, a kind of an expression of power and dominance and um, persuasion not through reason but through rank um, or the expression of power. And so there are all of these um, different components to it. Um, but for me, the baseline of how I define a good argument is it's one in which both sides walk away feeling like they would do that again. Because that's all it takes for the conversation to continue. If you're a debater and you're given as a topic, poker machines should be banned from pubs. That's just just throwing that out as a... Yeah. Just say that's, that's your topic. Yeah. And you're on the... Negative. Like, you can see instantly one side of the argument will talk about the social damage by poker machines in pubs, uh, how it's ruining pub culture. The other side will talk uh, perhaps the civil liberties, uh, take the civil liberties, civil liberties tack and say that it's not the business of the state to be telling people how they can enjoy themselves and the like and the money that's raised, etc. So when, when you're on, for example, the positive or the negative side of that proposition, how do you begin to assem- assemble your argument, Bo? So what you've given me is the conclusion, which is where we want to be at the end of the discussion. You want to have persuaded the other side to get rid of pokies or not, right? And so the starting place is to say um, that we should ban the use of pokey machines in pubs because, and to complete the sentence, because um, it will improve pub culture or because it will stop um, exploitation of vulnerable gamblers. So let's take the first of those things, that it will improve pub culture. And the debater says there are two things that that argument, which is what you have now, has to do. You have to show that the claim that you're making is true and that the fact that it's true means that we should change our mind. So that we should ban the use of pokies in pubs because it will improve pub culture. You have to show, first of all, it will in fact improve pub culture and that the fact that it will improve pub culture gives us enough of a reason to take this step against, as you suggested, uh, competing values on the other side, whether that be individual liberty or something else. So that's how you build one argument, and a case is a collection of those. Given that debaters often have to, don't get a choice in the side which they have to argue, they will sometimes inevitably argue in favour of something they profoundly personally disagree with. Mm -hmm. Is there a risk debaters can become cynical in this process? There is. Um, And the way in which I have worked through that is by thinking about or rethinking what conviction means. So we often think conviction is something we bring into a discussion, right? So I believe this to be true and I'm going to uh, defend it right? What the experience of debate has shown me is that conviction can just as often be something we take out of a discussion, that through the process of seeing both sides to an issue, as you say, sometimes being assigned a position that you don't believe and having to um, entertain the possibility that you're wrong, that that can be a force for strengthening your conviction rather than weakening it. 
does it force you to enter into the mind of someone else if you do have to argue for something you don't believe in? Does it force you in all kinds of healthy ways to take on the ideas of other people and just see if they can affect your conviction in some way? I think that's right. Um, you know, one way of understanding cynicism is there are no correct answers and it's just about... Um, Nothing is good and true. It's just about speaking well yeah. and um, the salesmanship of it. Um, the other view, um, which I think may be the opposite of cynicism, is the world is a more complex place than we can often grasp, that our perspective is more limited than we often credit ourselves for, and that it's through dialogue through taking a break sometimes from our own ego and the burden of certainty that we open ourselves up to other perspectives. You look at the debate that flowered during the civil rights period in the United States in the 50s and 60s between two really key figures. There was James Farmer, who was an integrationist uh, and an activist alongside Martin Luther King, and he would often debate Malcolm X, mm -hmm. who uh, believed in black nationalism and separation between the races, as they were called in the United States mm. at the time. What did you notice in the course of the debate? What went on in the course of the debates between those two men? I think the first is um, they had extraordinary background stories in debate. Malcolm X learned to debate in prison um, through a, pr a program that was established by forward-thinking prison designers and administrators James Farmer, on the other hand, had um, a wonderful coach at the historically black college that he attended, um, who's also the subject of the film The Great Debaters um, with Denzel Washington. And I wanted to tell those stories because they were, first of all, the stories of two men's education, and not just education as young people, but as citizens. It was in debate that they found the voice with which to speak about the most important issues of the time. The second thing I noticed is um, both were African-American civil rights leaders with quite different views about how to achieve equality. And they, in contemporary words, they aired their dirty laundry in public. They had these discussions um, in a respectful way, in a sustained way, um, in person, on radio, and on television. And they saw that as a source of strength rather than weakness of their movement, that they were able to speak candidly about the things with which on which they disagreed. After a while, they both agreed to take their debate offline, to not debate each other on television, but to just do it in their own houses. Why did they do that? That's very interesting. Um, I think the wisdom that's required of debaters, especially after they've spent a lifetime trying to get good at it, um, is to know when to put the tools away. Um, and I think in their instance, it was something about feeling that the divisiveness and the, and the, the disagreement had become a spectacle rather than um, a source of enlightenment or better understanding their differences. Do you think it, meant, it indicated a desire that they both wanted to get to somewhere they couldn't get? Otherwise, that's very interesting. Um, and I think that may be a part of it too. I mean, one feature of their debates was it was all in public. 
I saw their move of taking it inside the home as a reclaiming of a certain privacy. It seems to me it wasn't 100% in private because you write <laughs> that both their wives were in attendance and that's a brave thing to do, I think, for, uh, because <laughs> wives aren't impressed, so is in, impressed by a man's arguments that are conducted like that, and, and they will heckle you. They will heckle. Is that what happened in this case? Um, I think what they write is that <laughs> they, the, their wives were more taken by the other yeah, <laughs> person right. oh, rather yeah. than of the... Yeah, yeah, he's got a point there, doesn't he? Yeah, he, Exactly. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> did, did they move towards each other, their positions moved towards each other over time though, because of these debates? I think they did. And to what I was saying before about how I understand conviction, it was that each other's arguments, um, Malcolm X's argument for a kind of more direct intervention, um, farmer on building a broader base of support, it left a residue in the way in which both men made their argument going forward. And it's not that it changed their mind completely. It's that it added in textures and nuances that were not there before. And I think that is the power of disagreement that as we continue to move forward in the world, we carry with us the insights of others. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Bo, when cable news started in the United States. It was rather sanctimoniously proclaimed as a kind of an electronic town square where contending ideas could meet and interact and play out for the benefit of the polis and the, and, and the general public. How's that going, that theory of uh, cable news, Bo, to your mind? Um, it sounds like an anachronism, right? Mm. It sounds like a theory from another time. It sounds depressingly naive in a way, doesn't mm. it? I think you talk about the danger of outsourcing our need to debate each other well to these outlets. How does that work? One of the things that I see, um, and, and living in the United States now, there's very few common ground places on which people can meet. And one of the common grounds should be the news. But in a world where you have left channels and right channels, you don't have that convergence. And what you have instead is this urge to have these shows of dominance, right, where one side owns the other side. And we, as the spectators to this, and I think that's an important word, we as the viewers become spectators to this, right? So we watch talking heads argue about the important political issues of the day as our avatars and representatives. And our role as citizens is simply to share the smackdown, Problems with that, I think, are twofold. One is it's a giving up of the responsibility we have as citizens to have these conversations for ourselves. But I think the other thing is it leads our disagreements to become more like what the very limited format of broadcasting 
um, requires it to be, which is to go for the most inflammatory content, the most viral content. And so part of the um, way out of that, I think, is to reclaim, as we were saying before, that zone of privacy in which we have these conversations for ourselves. To me, it always looks like politics as a cult, cultish form of politics that um, is the most dangerous kind of politics. In in America, people are becoming increasingly distressed by what they call the Fox News grandparent, you know, having to share the Thanksgiving table with their grandparents who might have been radicalised by Fox News. And as we've seen in the recent court case in the United States, Fox News has been quite willing to perpetrate things that simply aren't true at all and and arguments that the presenters don't believe in on mm-hmm. air. Mm-hmm. And this creates terrible ructions across the table between family members. What can we can be done in such cases? I think the first thing is, um, on your point about it being a cult, we are living at a time where people take instruction from particular political or ideological identities, right? So because I am a person of the left, I believe these things. And one of the virtues of debating, I think, and this is something that's happening in schools around Australia at this moment is young people are thinking about issues one conversation at a time, that any individual is bigger than their political affiliation or their party affiliation. And so I think that is where we need to move towards in terms of how we get through to close family members who, um, who've become so entrenched in, in a given position, I'd say two things. I think the first is um, we have to be careful of approaching our private disagreements as though they were public ones. So the idea of cancelling a grandparent <laughs> doesn't make a great deal of sense. I've cancelled Nana. <laughs> Something for the diary, right? That's um, right. Well, your next book should be called Don't Cancel Nana. Exactly. Yeah, right. So it might make sense for um, a public broadcaster or, or a major media outlet to say, we're not going to give voice to certain views. But when a family member is sitting across the table from you and it's just you, there's a lot of leverage to be gained, I think, from treating that as a private conversation. The second thing I would say is one of the lessons from debate is that every disagreement should start with some agreement. And that's agreement about how we're going to have the conversation, but it's also what we're disagreeing about. So being able to say, today we are just disagreeing about the pokies or whatever the other issue is, and not bringing it onto the table the flaws of conservatism or of liberalism, having those bounds can help with approaching things one issue at a time. I've got this wonderful quote here in front of me from, look, bear with me, but it's from a French existentialist. You know, (laughs) we we should be drinking absinthe or something like that in a cafe, I know. But it's an interesting quote because Sartre wrote about what he thought was the pointlessness of arguing with someone who was an anti-Semite. And I'm just going to quote him here. He said... Never believe that anti-Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. They know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge, but they are amusing themselves for it is their adversary who's obliged to use Mm. words responsibly since he believes in words. The anti-Semites have the right to play. They even like to play with discourse for by giving ridiculous reasons, they discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors. Mm. They delight in acting in bad faith since they seek not to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate. 
and disconcert. Mm. Is there point, any point debating someone who holds a position like that mm. in bad faith, as, mm. which is Sartre's phrase? Mm. The other line that comes to mind is from Toni Morrison, which is that the function of racism is distraction. It wears you down. It takes up all of your time. Um, and that's the way in which bad faith debaters get ahead. I think the first thing is we as a society and as listeners to disagreements need to demand better, right? So it can be very tempting when we have someone who's a bad faith debater, but they're on our side to be forgiving, right? To say, even though they took a cheap shot here, because they're broadly correct, we're not going to demand much more of them. So a population that demands reasons, evidence, well-thought-out positions, consideration of the other side, responsiveness, that's a population that I think has some immunity to the kind of debater that um, Sartre was describing in the quote. Then there's a question of what we do as individuals, right, when we're face-to-face -face with such a person. And I think there are instances where it's not going to be worthwhile, but the way in which we make it worthwhile is to have in mind some countermeasures that we can use to the common strategies used by bad faith debaters. Some kinds of bad debaters just say no to everything, right? They can think of a critique for any position that you put forward. And to that person who I call the wrangler, the advice is to pin them to a position to say, well, what do you believe? So that that way, there's a comparison of different views. I've done that a few times. Have and you? it's interesting to watch that person scurry away from the argument and say, I've got a buster catch at that point. I like that. Yeah. And um, <laughs> th there is that, um, there is a kind of a, a, a sneakiness that emerged from the description that you had, isn't there? And the point of disagreement is, it should be an environment in which both sides present themselves fully and to each other so that there can be a comparison and a conversation. So there are these tactics to use and there should also be a, an insistence that what we're having here is a debate. It's a disagreement. It's not a name-calling match. It's not mudslinging. And to say, unless we can agree to have this kind of discussion, I'm not interested in the other brawling kind of conversation. You have all sorts of praise for the, the whole idea of formal debate, uh, the way it gives time for someone to advance an argument, the way it it, it makes people listen. It, it sort of does require listening. The way it, it inclines the debaters to really stick to the, the topic at hand and not let that disagreement metastasize, as mm. you say. But is the adversarial system really the best way to resolve disagreements? There are many Indigenous cultures, for example, that practice a form of exhaustive talking through yes. the subject at hand. Once everyone's had their say and felt they've been entirely heard, that's when you move forward. It's, it's, it's very time-consuming, mm. but it means when you move forward, everyone's okay with it, by and large, and you yes. move forward as a group and with a fair bit of understanding. What do you think of that, Bo? I think of debate as one language of disagreement. Others include negotiation or even bargaining. Disagreement itself is one appropriate response to the fact that people are different, but that they must find ways of getting along. Sometimes at that point, as you say, the right response isn't to disagree about our differences. It's just to hear one another out or to find as many commonalities as we can. Um, so debate and the case for debating is at its weakest when it tries to be the whole game. It has its limits, 
but I want to insist it has a role too. So it's through debating that we learn to organize our thinking in a way that's going to be more persuasive to the other side. It's in that clash of opinions that it's not always the case in debating that A comes against B and it's A or B. It's you have to evolve your position in response to the feedback and the criticisms that you're getting. So I think there is a tremendous power for creativity in the activity. But as you suggest, there is a need to understand its limits too. I think it is kind of one of those great, uh, I don't know, it's an irony, what would you, what, what, what you'd call it, that some of the worst arguments we have in our lives, the worst run arguments, the messiest, stupidest arguments we have <laughs> Oh, with the people we love the most in this world. Yes. You say that can sometimes proceed from a kind of carelessness. What, yes. do, you, what do you mean by that? Um, I mean, love makes us stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a puzzle for me. Um, I kind of understand why it's hard to talk to our political opponents, right, who have different factual bases for understanding the world and, and whose desires are so antithetical to my own. But why is it so hard for family... I think it's because, first of all, when we decide to share our lives with someone, which is a wonderful thing to do, we create lots of overlap. So there's lots of things to disagree about. So a disagreement about the dirty dishes also becomes what you said to me last week, what the in-laws are doing. So it's a proxy for a, a, something that might be more significant. The trivial stands in for something to Precisely. talk about. And there's an, and there's an expectation that because it's my spouse, because it's a family member, because it's my partner, they should agree with me. <laughs> and as soon as you think that, it would be a wonder if the conversation went well. Don't you love me enough to agree with me in all things in this world? <laughs> exactly. That's, that kind of a, yeah. So that's where the carelessness comes from. You think you, I suppose you think you're confidently withdrawing from a bank that's full of coin when um, you might just end up taking too much out of the bank. I think that's right. Um, and we have all these, um, I think, slightly confused ideas about love that it should be about getting each other when we haven't even said a word. And what I think is closer to the truth is that the closer we are, the more overlap there is, the greater care and thoughtfulness with which we need to approach those conversations. One of the things that comes up again and again in your book is the attention you pay to the body language of the person you're arguing with, whether that's a formal debate or within a family argument or something like that. What can you do when you do that, when you are watching the body language of the person who's arguing with you, when you pay attention to that? I think the, the basic distinction is whether they are open to what is being said or whether they are closed. And that openness can be nodding, right? It can be a softness around the eyes. It can be um, a kind of a, a soft smile, right? That even when they're disagreeing with you, they're understanding and open to what is being suggested. And I think when the other person, when the other person is closed, um, it often helps to take a break from the disagreement to, for example, ask questions, right? To say, what is it that you think at this time? How do you feel about what I just said? And uh, getting the other person to the position where they're receptive to influence and vice versa, I think that can be one of the things that body language helps us with. That requires a great degree of self-control, doesn't it? 
It does. It's sort of emotional continence, if that's the phrase I'm thinking of <laughs> here, uh, in order to be able to have the presence of mind to do that. Do you think debate encourages that habit? I think it does. And it says that virtue is not a precondition to good practice, but that good practice can give rise to those kinds of virtues. For me, the hardest part of debate is always remaining vulnerable remaining vulnerable to the other person's judgment, to the other person's critique. And it's only through the practice of doing it often, of losing a lot, right? which is what the life of a debater really involves. It's just losing <laughs> again and again in public. It's that practice that helps grow that muscle. You talk about the debater's practice of, uh, like you call it the side switch, where in order to prepare for your argument, you anticipate what your opponent will say about you and about your arguments and the premises of all that. You, you inhabit that person's mind, the opponent's mind. Imagine what you'd be arguing were you that opponent. And that's just kind of a tactic. But there seems to be a broader philosophical, emotional benefit from that as well. Tell me about that. So, the, so much of debate is an exercise in certainty. Right. It's about coming up with your case, becoming fully convinced it's the correct one, at least for the hour in which you're going to be arguing it. But the best debaters know just before you go up on the stage to turn over to a new sheet of paper and to prepare the three best arguments for the other side or to go through what you've already prepared and try and come up with as many holes and problems with it as you can find. Um, those are called the side switch exercises. And it's a break from the certainty. It's viewing yourself from the position of the other. It's viewing your perspective as limited, as uh, a position in need of accommodation. You talked about the burden of certainty. So is there a, is there a feeling of relief when you practice this side There switch? is, because imagine the heavy burden of going into a debate saying, I've got the 100% correct answer. It's all right. It's all over and done with. Exactly. I'm going to talk for 10 minutes, but we all know what's going on Exactly. Here. Yeah. And, right. um, yeah. and it's an important part of debating that you learn when you're certain, when you're sure you're correct, that's the time when you're closest to danger. That's when you're going to make a mistake. That's when you're going to fail to explain it in a way that makes room for the other side. And so those side switch exercises um, puts you in the mind of thinking, mine is just one perspective among many. It's going to require some work to do persuasion. And it allows you to enter into a conversation, seeing things both from your perspective and from the perspective of another. And I think it's in that, it's in preserving that multiplicity of voices that we can participate more fully in conversation. There's a really intriguing quote in your book, and I'm just going to quote it back to you. In practicing the side switch, you say the experience of seeing the world simultaneously through our eyes and those of another person was confusing, unsettling, enervating. It was also not the worst description of love. Now, I, I know you, you grew up, your family grew up within the Uniting Church in Australia. Are you talking about love there in the New Testament sense of the idea of love, that kind of act of radical compassion that is called for in the New Testament? Or am I completely off, off the beaten track there? I think that's certainly one part of it. And in the tradition in which I grew up, um, 
love was a practice, right? It wasn't just a frame of mind. It was living in the world as though you are not the only person. So I think that there is a, a connection to that tradition. But I think for me, it's something a little more fundamental, um, something beyond any individual religious commitment, which is love seems to me a recognition that we are not self-sufficient, that our lives are not at their best when we try to be self-sufficient, that it relies on connection to other people, reliance on other people, openness to that to their influence. Um, and in addition to all the other ways in which we connect with our loved one, conversation is the one I'm most interested in and and at its best, it embodies that kind of love. One of the greatest debaters in all of world history was Abraham Lincoln, US president. I'm a big fan of his. There's so many extraordinary uh, things that he said. Mm. Uh, he said in his first inaugural address addressing the breakaway southern states, you know, we are friends, not enemies. We must not be enemies. We must listen to the better angels of our nature. Uh, he said he was capable of great in the debates he had with his opponent, Stephen Douglas. He was capable of statements of utter elegant moral clarity. He yes. would say things like, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. That's, that's very good. But then he also said this. He said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Hmm. What do you think of that? Destroy my enemies. Because you, you might have an opponent. You, you debate opponents, don't you? Not enemies. Or do you? I don't know. What do you think of that? That's interesting. Um, we debate opponents in debating. And it's because even though we might consider them our enemy, they're going to be back the next week. right? No matter how contentious a single round is, we're going to have to see them again. Because in some deep sense, we all live together. And for me, there is a truth to that about how our communities are shaped, what it means to be a citizen in a democracy. And so the part about the quote that speaks to me is the sooner we can stop viewing ourselves as um, viewing each other as enemies, but as neighbors, as friends, people with whom we are going to continue to have disagreement but with whom we share a commitment to making those disagreements pull us in a positive rather than negative direction, that seems to me a very worthy aspiration. In the spirit of that, when you wrote the book, you'd finished your manuscript, you write that you sent out copies to your friends. That's brave. Yes. That, that's, that, that's brave. <laughs> what feedback did they give you? One of the things that I heard is it's too small scale. and uh, what, what does that mean? And I think it means it's just about the change that you can affect is just at the individual level, right? Where's the policy here? Where's the institutional changes, the, um, the, the sweeping effect that this is going to have in the world? Would you like to become like secretary, secretary for debating in the next US administration? <laughs> but, I mean, in, and have a huge government department for constructive debate or something like yes. that. Speaking about right. burdens, right? Mm. Imagine having yes. a role. And, and I struggled with that. And, you know, it's my first book. You wanted to have an effect on the world. You want to say, I have something to, significant to say. But for me, in the end, it was very important that debate doesn't scale, conversation doesn't scale. It's about the interactions that we have daily, face-to-face -face with the people around us. And it's by changing how we have those conversations, what we get out of those conversations, um, that I think we can have an extraordinary effect on the world. 
I'm going to quote another US president here. It's not so much a quote, but it's a story, really. Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, famously would write letters, furious, angry letters to people, and then just hang on to them for a day. And they were almost never sent. They were almost never, never sent. But (laughs) he seemed to benefit from getting the rage and argumentativeness off his his chest. Yes. Arguing not in, you know, it it seems to work for you personally, but just just do it it quietly in the privacy of your own home. I like that. And thinking about conversation as a platform that we must share with others, that it's not just um, an opportunity to have your peace and escape any kind of challenge. That sense of sharing seems to me very important. And one of the things that you learn in debating is it's not that you're putting away your emotions, it's that you're channeling them. You're putting them in a form that allows the other side to understand it. And just very briefly, finally, do you wonder if you'd been, if you had stayed in South Korea and not come to Australia and become a debater, that you would have become a debater in Korea without becoming being an outsider looking in on a culture? I'm not sure that I would have. There's something about debating that I think is distinctively Australian. Really? Um, Australians are, just as a matter of fact, some of the best competitive debaters in the world. But I think it comes from a culture where um, that idea that there are many perspectives that we might not get our way, that seems to me very rooted in our culture of of arguing sometimes for the sake of it, cutting people down a notch, um, of being in this place in the world where we are internally incredibly diverse, we're split between the West and East. All of those features create a culture of debate that I'm very grateful for. It's been amazing speaking with you, Bo. Come back on the program again soon, please. It was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard. Boso's book is called Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.